On Saturday, November 13, 1931, W.K. Norton disappeared from his home on Strand Avenue in Manhattan Beach, California. No trace of him was left behind, and no one had the slightest inkling of a clue as to where exactly he had gone. His wife, family, and the police were left with no real leads, and little could be done to find him, except wait and hope for his eventual return. Just shy of a week later, at a nearby hotel, a maid was making her rounds, exactly as she would have done any other day. In fact, today had been no different than any other day. Nothing had happened that would have stirred up any amount of suspicion. And as she made her way down the hotel's long hallway, it was calm and quiet. But little did she know that she was about to make a discovery that would completely shatter the apparent normalcy of that particular Thursday. She opened a door to clean a guest's room, one James Willies from Chicago. But as the door gave way to reveal the contents of the room, she didn't find the vacant room that she had expected. Instead, she was greeted with a startling sight. Her heart skipped a beat as she saw Mr. Willies, lying lifeless on the bed with a heap of spent capsules piled up next to him. The maid immediately alerted the authorities, and a short while later, the police arrived to investigate the scene. Mr. Willis was fully clothed and appeared only to have been dead for a couple of hours prior to his discovery. His cause of death, they concluded, was suicide by poisoning, the capsules lying next to him being the source of the poison. Now, while all of this was odd enough, the final clue that they uncovered was certainly the strangest. It turns out that Mr. James Willis from Chicago had checked in on Saturday, November 13th, the same day that W.K. Norton had gone missing. In the deceased man's pockets, the police found checks made out to Mrs. M.C. Norton, allowing the police to confirm that James Willis was not who he claimed to be, and that he was, in fact, W.K. Norton of Manhattan Beach, California. Mr. Norton's suicide was a strange and unsettling event, but it was only the beginning, and for this particular hotel, the worst was yet to come. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of Simply Strange. I am PJ, and thank you so much for stopping by. It is a pleasure to speak at you today. So this week, we are going to be digging into a story that I've been holding on to for quite a while now. Back in April, Simply Strange listener, fellow podcaster, and all-around wonderful gentleman, Corey, mentioned it to me, and I've been thinking about covering it ever since, and I just haven't really gotten around to it, but I'm finally going to be doing it. So, thanks, Corey. And if any of you fine folks are into classic cult horror and action movies, definitely check out his show, Podcasting After Dark. Or if you hate fun, stick around with me instead, because there will not be a lot of that here this week. 
And that is all. So without further ado, let's head out to sunny Los Angeles. This is the story of the Cecil Hotel. The Cecil Hotel opened in 1927 at 640 South Main Street in Los Angeles, California. It was a grand hotel, conceived by a hotelier by the name of William Banks Hanner. With its prime location among the bustling streets of downtown LA, the Cecil was envisioned as a high-end establishment, a destination hotel for businessmen and other wealthy visitors, a model that had been successful at many other hotels in the area. Hanner invested a million dollars into the construction of the 14-floor, 700-room hotel, and when it opened in 1927, it seemed that his vision had come to fruition. The Cecil Hotel was stunning. Its sprawling open lobby was embellished with marble flooring, regal stained-glass windows, gold trim, and even a red carpet. As planned, it attracted high-end clientele. That is until two years after opening, when the American economy collapsed and the country was thrown into the Great Depression. By 1933, the average American wage had dropped by 40%, and the American homeless rate reached an astonishing 25%. Before long, the Cecil's neighborhood, just east of downtown LA, became home to thousands of homeless people, growing a rough reputation and becoming known as Skid Row. Between its now undesirable location and a diminishing client base, the hotel's wealthy patronage quickly morphed into a much different array of visitors. The halls of the Cecil Hotel began to be filled by social outcasts, criminals, addicts, and other representatives of the seedy underbelly of society. The Cecil Hotel's reputation changed from that of the shiny, sophisticated new place where the social elite gathered to a place that was best avoided a place where dangerous people gathered, and a place where terrible things happened. W.K. Norton's suicide in 1931 was only the beginning. In the 1930s alone, there were five more reported suicides at the Cecil Hotel. Among them were Benjamin Dodick, who died of self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head in 1932, and Sergeant Louis Borden, who slashed his own throat with a razor in 1934. In 1940, a teacher by the name of Dorothy Skyger was reported to be in near-death condition after ingesting poison. However, there are no further reports updating her condition after the incident, so it's assumed that she, at least, survived. As time went on, the tragedies that occurred at the Cecil Hotel continued to grow more and more disturbing. And perhaps one of the worst occurred in September of 1944. 19-year-old Dorothy Levine and her boyfriend, 38-year-old shoe salesman Ben Levine, 
were sharing a room together at the hotel. In the middle of the night, Dorothy awoke with terrible stomach cramps, and in an effort to not disturb her sleeping boyfriend, Dorothy snuck off to the bathroom, where, to her surprise, she gave birth to a baby boy. As it turns out, Dorothy had no idea that she was pregnant, and from here, she does the unthinkable. She throws her newborn son out of the window. In the ensuing murder trial, Dorothy Levine would go on record saying, I don't know why I did it, but I thought he was dead. And in January of 1945, she would be found not guilty by way of insanity. Following this disturbing incident, the Cecil's reputation as a dark place where horrible things happened continued to evolve. Over the next 20 years, four more people leapt to their deaths from the upper floor windows of the Cecil Hotel. Of these incidents, the most notable is likely that of Pauline Auten in 1962. On October 12th, Pauline and her estranged husband got into a heated argument in their ninth floor room at the Cecil Hotel. Following the argument, Pauline was so distraught that she threw herself from the window. On the sidewalk below, 65-year-old George Gianni happened to be passing by the Cecil, and in a barely believable stroke of bad luck, George was struck by the plummeting woman. Both were killed by the impact. Interestingly, as the police were trying to piece together what exactly had happened, it was initially suspected that the two had both jumped together, perhaps having been in some sort of suicide pact. But, after further investigation, it became clear that George had been struck. The man's hands were resting in his pockets, and his shoes were still on, and investigators determined that, had he fallen as well, the impact would have pulled his hands out of his pockets and ripped his shoes off of his feet. Another notable incident occurred in June of 1964. Goldie Osgood was a longtime resident of the Cecil, and she was well known throughout the area. One of her favorite pastimes was to go out to the nearby Pershing Square and feed the birds, which earned her the nickname Pigeon Goldie. On June 4th, a worker at the Cecil Hotel discovered Pigeon Goldie Osgood dead in her room. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and stabbed. Her room was ransacked, and there was no sign of an assailant. In fact, her killer has never been found, and the murder remains unsolved. While the Cecil Hotel has seen more than its fair share of tragic suicides and gruesome murders, there is still much more to its story. Murderous residents and baffling accidents also help contribute to the hotel's macabre reputation. As we've already discussed, the decline of the Cecil Hotel during the Great Depression brought with it an influx of seedy clientele, and this theme continued long past the boundaries of the Depression. The Cecil was a place where outcasts were right at home, and strange comings and goings were commonplace. It was a place where bizarre events could easily be lost in the chaos, and evil could exist in plain sight without raising even the slightest suspicion. 
Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas, and following a disturbed childhood, he moved to California in 1982, at the age of 22. From June of 1984 to August of 1985, Ramirez went on a brutal killing spree that stretched across Los Angeles and later San Francisco. All told, Ramirez murdered 13 people, often using blunt objects like hammers and lamps that he found lying around the homes of his victims. Additionally, he savagely beat many others and robbed most of his victims as well. Over time, the media dubbed him the Night Stalker. As it turns out, during much of his killing spree, Richard Ramirez resided in a room on the top floor of the Cecil Hotel, where, following his murderous escapades, Ramirez would ditch his bloodied clothes in the hotel's dumpster. Then he would march back to his room, in his underwear, or sometimes even naked, and given the fever dream of oddities that was the Cecil, no one would even bat an eye at his bizarre behavior, and he was able to get by without raising any suspicion. Finally, in August of 1985, investigators did manage to follow the trail of breadcrumbs left behind by Ramirez during his attacks. He was identified, and on August 31st, captured and ultimately sentenced to death. Six years later, in 1991, Jack Unterweger, a journalist from Austria, paid a visit to Los Angeles in order to work on a story about crime in L.A. As part of his research, he connected with the local police department and secured ride-alongs with the LAPD in order to gain a better understanding of the dark world that he was writing about. And during his time there, Unterweger opted to stay at the Cecil Hotel. Now, on the surface, Unterweger seemed like a perfectly normal guy. If anything, he was pretty impressive. He was an accomplished journalist and poet, well-respected back home in Austria. He was intelligent, articulate, and charismatic. And he seemed eager to learn as much as he could for his story. But there was much more to Jack Unterweger than what he showed on the surface. Jack was a convicted murderer. In 1974, he killed an 18-year-old German girl named Margaret Schaefer by strangling her with her own bra. Two years later, he was arrested and sentenced to life in prison. He would not, however, be serving a sentence nearly that harsh. While in prison, Utterweger devoted much of his time to writing. Poetry, short stories, plays, even an autobiography that would later be made into a documentary. From the outside looking in, Jack seemed to be the very definition of a reformed criminal. An assortment of highly regarded people, writers, politicians, and journalists, began to fight for his release, arguing that someone who wielded such elegant and beautiful words could not possibly be harboring whatever evil possessed him in 1974 when he committed his crimes. And their cries were heard. In 1990, Jack Unterweger was released from prison. However, he was not reformed. If anything, the monster that was released was far more demented than the one that had first entered prison 15 years ago. Almost immediately, Jack Unterweger killed again. He received a grant to produce a play that he had written, titled Scream of Fear. In all of the towns that the show toured to, prostitutes seemed to go missing around the same time. It didn't take long for investigators to grow suspicious of him again, but before they were able to gather enough evidence to arrest him, 
Unterweger began working as a journalist and moved to Los Angeles to write his story on LA crime, where more prostitutes began turning up dead. Eventually, Unterweger was finally arrested and charged with 11 murders, spanning across the United States, Czechoslovakia, Germany, and Austria. On June 29, 1994, he was sentenced to life in prison. But that same night, he hung himself in prison. It is suspected, although not confirmed, that Unterweger opted to spend his time in Los Angeles living at the Cecil Hotel because of its dark history, specifically its connection to Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Perhaps the most infamous story ever to come out of the Cecil Hotel is that of Elisa Lam in 2013. Elisa was a 21-year-old Canadian student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, although at the time, Elisa was missing far more of her classes than she was managing to attend. Elisa suffered from severe, crippling depression, which resulted in an overpowering lethargy that ultimately forced her to drop most of her classes. Three years into college, Elisa had successfully completed just as many classes, and in late 2012, she felt that it was best that she give herself a break. So she planned a trip, a West Coast tour, as she put it. She traveled alone, relying on buses and trains for transportation, and checking in with her worried parents every day to assure them that she was safe. On January 26th, 2013, following a stint in San Diego, Elisa arrived in Los Angeles, where she checked into a downtown hotel on Main Street, the Cecil. Over the days that followed, Elisa explored LA by foot, visiting shops, taking in the sights and sounds, and even attending a taping of Conan O'Brien's TV show, all the while calling her parents each day to check in and update them on her adventure. That is, until what was supposed to be her fourth and final day in LA. On January 31st, her parents never received a call from their daughter. And on February 1st, fearing the worst after having heard nothing from Elisa throughout the night, they called the police and soon after flew to LA to aid in the search for their daughter. Upon their arrival, it became immediately clear that something was wrong. Elisa had vanished. As the investigation began in earnest, tiny pieces of information began to trickle out revealing a very fragmented picture of Elisa's whereabouts on the 31st. The last meaningful contact anyone had with her seemed to be when she spoke with the manager of a local bookstore near the Cecil Hotel, while buying gifts for her family. The bookstore manager, Katie Orphan, reported that she could recall nothing strange about Elisa. She was outgoing and friendly, and excited about her finds at the bookstore. Later, staff at the Cecil reported having seen her, alone, at the hotel the evening of the 31st, but again, noted nothing unusual about her behavior. But that was it. No trace of Elisa could be found anywhere. Early in the investigation, the police reached out to the public, urging anyone who had information that may help the investigation to come forward. But their plea yielded few results. Sadly, Elisa's case was not a particularly unique one. In a massive city like L.A., 
people went missing all the time, and Elisa's story was quickly buried among a plethora of other stories. Until February 13th, two weeks after Elisa's disappearance, when the police released a new piece of information that immediately thrust the case into the limelight. The LAPD released a tape. Footage from the Cecil Hotel's elevator security camera captured in the early morning hours of February 1st. This footage was the absolute last recorded information about Elisa Lamb's whereabouts prior to vanishing. And it was eerie. The unsettling video shows Elisa alone. Elisa normally wears glasses, but tonight, as she enters the tiny elevator, they are missing. She crouches, getting eye level and very close to the elevator's number pad. Oddly, she selects four floors, and then she backs away from the pad and stands in the corner, waiting for the elevator doors to close. But they don't. And this is where the video gets downright bizarre and disturbing, given the context. After a few seconds of standing in the corner waiting for the doors to close, it becomes apparent that they are not going to. The elevator seems to be malfunctioning. Then, for a reason that is not apparent to the viewer, Elisa inches forward in the elevator. She quickly pokes her head out the door, steals a quick glance to the right, and then the left, seemingly surveying the hallway. And just as quickly, she retreats back into the elevator car, where she repositions herself, leaning against the wall and seemingly trying to hide, while also peering in the direction of the elevator door. Over the course of the video, Elisa's erratic behavior persists. She continues to step in and out of the elevator, often with abrupt, unnatural movements. At one point, she steps back into the hallway, looks to her right, and begins to make a series of unnatural hand gestures, waving her arms around and bending her fingers. It almost looks like she's speaking with someone. But given the camera's position inside of the elevator car, the hallway is mostly obscured, and again, little can be seen of what is going on beyond its door. And then, finally, after an extremely bizarre two and a half minutes, Elisa walks away. A few seconds later, the malfunctioning elevator's doors open and close a few times, and then the video ends. The elevator video went viral. Elisa's strange behavior, accompanied with the knowledge that she disappeared immediately after, sent chills down the spine of all who watched it. And before long, the video had garnered millions of hits on YouTube, and web sleuths from all across the world began contributing their opinions and theories as to what exactly had happened to Elisa. But still, no new leads, and the police were no closer to finding the missing woman either. Until, that is, five days after the release of the footage. On February 19th, residents at the Cecil began to report issues with the hotel's water. The pressure was extremely low, and some even reported that what little water they were able to get was discolored and had a strange taste to it. The plumbing at the Cecil was a gravity-fed system. Its water originated from four 1,000-gallon tanks that resided on the roof of the hotel. So, naturally, when there was an issue with the water, these tanks were the first place to be checked. A worker was sent up to the roof to investigate the tanks, and upon their arrival, they made a startling discovery. Near the tanks was a pile of women's clothes. A pile of clothes that turned out to be an exact match to the clothes that Elisa had been wearing in the elevator video. And at the bottom of one of the water tanks, the worker discovered the nude, 
deceased body of a woman. It was Elisa. After a five-month-long investigation, the LAPD determined that there was no evidence of foul play, and that Elisa's death was merely a tragic accident. Given her mental health struggles, it was believed that she experienced a psychotic episode of some sort, thus explaining her strange behavior in the elevator video, and that she had made her way to the roof, climbed into the water tank, and drowned. But that being said, many people are not quite convinced. The elevator video, which has had its timestamps blurred out, is claimed by many to have been doctored, and it has been suggested that there's more to what happened that night than what was actually released to the public. Contrarian theories range from murder to suicide and paranormal activity to drug use. While an accidental drowning may be the most feasible possibility, the strange video and the Cecil Hotel's dark reputation make this case a startling and divisive one even years later. All told, there have been 16 known deaths at the Cecil Hotel, ranging from murder to suicide to tragic accidents. And over the years, the Cecil has been cemented as one of the darkest, most foreboding places in Los Angeles. In 2011, the Cecil Hotel made an attempt to distance itself from its tragic history by rebranding to the Stay on Main Hotel and Hostel. But with Elisa Lam's unfortunate death only a short while later, that obviously didn't quite work. In 2015, a New York City development group assumed control of the hotel and put together a plan to completely gut and renovate it in a continual effort to distance it from its troubled past. In 2017, the hotel was closed for renovations, and it remains closed today. Reportedly, the targeted completion of the renovations is October of 2021. But as of yet, little progress seems to have been made. The regal lodging for the wealthy that William Banks Hanner envisioned when he opened the Cecil Hotel in 1927, unfortunately, was never afforded the opportunity to come to fruition, and instead, the hotel has seemingly been cursed from the very day that it first opened its doors. At best, it has suffered from terribly bad luck, and some have even gone a step further and assert that the hotel is haunted. And now its fate is up in the air. Time will tell if the Cecil Hotel ever reopens, and if it does, it will be fascinating to see if the old hotel can ever shake its checkered past. Alright everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you want to keep up with the show on social media, definitely be sure to give us a follow. Simply Strange is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search Simply Strange and you'll find it. I would like to extend a huge thank you to Stacy H., our newest supporter over on Patreon. Thank you so much, Stacy, and everyone else who supports the show over there. It still kind of blows me away that there are actually people who like the show enough to contribute in that way, and I really, really do appreciate it. If anyone else would like to learn about supporting the show on Patreon, feel free to take a look at patreon.com slash simplystrange. 
And if you aren't in a place where you can support the show financially, you can still help out by telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Those are both awesome ways to help out as well. And that's all I've got for you this month. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. The next episode will be out on Christmas Day. So have a happy holidays, and Simply Strange will be back in a month with another weird and wild story for you.